it's much easier to say to somebody, here's what you believe and here's why you're right, than to say, here's what you believe and here's why you're wrong. And persuasion is usually only something you try and do because you think they are wrong about something, even if it's a fairly trivial thing. But you, but starting by saying this instinct you have that X is true is a good one, but it only follows from this other thing, which I, but because I now know what you believe where, where I agree with you, I can then start there and work back to the thing that must therefore also be true. Um, and so the better we understand that story or those cultural waters we're swimming in, the more likely we are to find connection points. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Andrew Wilson is teaching pastor at King's Church London and has degrees in history and theology from Cambridge and King's College London. He is a columnist for Christianity Today and has written several books. The most recent is Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West. I agree with historian Mark Knoll, who wrote, Andrew Wilson's book is extraordinary in every way. Extraordinary in the breadth of research, extraordinary in the multitude of world significant events that Wilson identifies for 1776, extraordinary in the depth of his insight on what those events meant and continue to mean, extraordinary in the verve with which he makes his arguments, and not least, extraordinary in the persuasive Christian framework in which he sets the book. Remaking the world is a triumph of both creative historical analysis and winsome Christian interpretation. Andrew Wilson, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Uh, I'm, I love your your book, Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West. Thank you for writing it. Thank you very much. It's really lovely to be with you. I have to say, when I when I saw that subtitle, 1776, you know, post-Christian, I was a little suspicious, right? I mean, this this just, you know, the language of post-Christian is so often the sort of language of of uh catastrophizing, uh of of doom. Um, and then the 1776, I just assumed, okay, we're just talking about the American Revolution here. I had no I I'd never put together how many huge things were happening in 1776. You you identify about 10 major events and and you know cultural moments like Gibbon's rise uh is it the decline and fall of the, the Roman Empire and Adam Smith's wealth of nations that all yeah. this was going on in in 1776 it's not just yeah. The steam engine, I think, is massive. The start of early romantic movements. And yeah, I mean, it's it's just such a fascinating period of history. And obviously, partly the subtitle is a little perceived, it's probably designed to create the impression you got, which is yeah. just partly to draw Americans in. Go, oh, okay. Well, is, I, I hope this isn't a British guy saying that the American Revolution is to blame for everything. But obviously, it's not. Most of the book isn't, as you know, isn't about America. Um, and I think we want to give its due to that important moment in political terms, but also to say there's a load of other stuff going on here. It's just one, it seems to be one of those years. There's probably one or two others, I would say, 1492, uh, 1453, a couple of years in history where a whole lot changes in one 12-month period. But I do think 1776 is nearly unique in the range of different things that are going on and the amount of reverberations they still have in the modern world. Yeah. Okay, so you use the acronym WEIRDER to describe our world. And I, I think yeah. WEIRD is – the WEIRD acronym is not original to you. Maybe the, the ER at the end is is from yeah, you. Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we, weird on its own is a sort of has been around for ten or fifteen years in psychology circles uh-huh. uh, as a way of describing, to be honest, people like you and me, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic. To which I've added the E and the R, ex-Christian and romantic, which are more to do with ideologies and sort of intellectual and emotional undercurrents to the one modern world, whereas the five that the psychologists talk about are more to do with institutional and material conditions. So it's a way of trying to slightly broaden the, the terminology and to include Christianity, which obviously I'm very interested in, yeah. but romanticism as well as a sort of intellectual artistic movement, which I think is a very important part of the way that modern Western people think as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely want to get to that in just a minute. Um and the you know the convenience of this acronym weird or weirder is a reminder to us that our way of seeing the world, which seems perfectly normal to us, is um, not normal at all in in the sweep of of history. Yeah, not. A, I mean, that I think in a weird, in a way, in a weird way, and it's pretty Freudian. <laughs> so in a way, it becomes very obvious as soon as you travel. So mm-hmm. as soon as you go, it, you, as soon as you interact, certainly with someone who's not at, at all from your normal milieu. If you, if, I, if you or I was just to get parachuted into you know, some large city in China that you and I might struggle to spell if we heard its name, yeah. Zhengzhou or something. You just get yeah. plonked there, try and find your way. And you'd suddenly you'd realize hey, this is not just an issue of language. There's just so many assumptions about the world that are not shared here. Some of them are. Some of the technology is actually almost identical, but the values are very different and the way people think about the home and the self and marriage and work and parenting and almost everything that matters, certainly God, you know, that the, they almost they all matter. And actually, to a limited degree, obviously, I'm European, so you, we, it's much easier to travel to lots of very different countries from where I live than probably from where you and most of your listeners do. But you're just continually interacting with people who don't share quite basic assumptions. But I think in this book, I'm trying to stand back from from that and almost challenge at a, at a deeper level, even the fact that you, I mean, I have some slightly silly ones, but even the fact that there's a flush toilet within 30 seconds of where you're sitting right now yeah. is an extremely unusual development and and that makes a big difference to the way you see the world interestingly the kind of toilet you have in your home was invented in 1775 um <laughs> and and but there's many many things like that like, look, there are so many very quite basic things that you hold that you think i didn't even realize most people didn't think about that or mm-hmm. think that way until you interact with someone who's very different or someone of course who's dead which is much of what you do when you write about the past yeah and then think this is a very small even today as a small section of the global population, let alone across history. So, yeah, I, I found that fascinating too. As I was yeah. into, what are a couple of of things that you have in mind when you when you think that we have no don't even think about it being so unusual or, uh, you know? Well, I think so. So a good ex- a few good examples. I think the way that we think about the self and the way that we think about the individual. I think it would almost be impossible for people today to conceive of how you wouldn't think that an individual's destiny and agenda for their own life was immeasurably more important than what their community expected of them. Yeah. But that is very unusual. And still, a lot of people in the world today find Western individualism very hard to understand. And the self-centeredness, by which I don't just mean selfish in a childish way, but I mean the the idea that our world is just constructed around the self is a very uh, odd belief 
to many, many people. And you, you wouldn't have to travel very far from where I live. Mm-hmm. I'll be seeing friends in a couple of weeks from, you know, Palestine or Armenia or Turkey or whatever, but, but who, who they kind of know it because they're, they're smart people who understand a bit Western, but they do find it odd. Um, the, the idea of, yeah, community obligations being almost irrelevant. The, the plot of Romeo and Juliet, you know, you, yeah. your family thinks you should marry this person, but you really in your heart want to marry that person. So go, you knock yourself out, girlfriend. That, that kind of narrative, which is yeah. so central to Western people, it just seems very, like, they wouldn't see the Capulets as the bad guys in that story. And, and there's so many examples like that. It just, yeah. it isn't how people think about the world. Their stories don't work that way. Their, their playlists don't work that way. Yeah. And so that would be a very basic one that people almost find it hard to imagine. What well, you know, the arg- arguments that we had a hundred years ago about voting weren't, you know, about do, do women vote or whatever, were not really arguments about are men better than women. And by and large, they were actually often votes about should families come together and agree what they believe? Uh-huh. A lot of the arguments were anyway, or does every individual have a right to vote? And is that going to split the family? You know? Nowadays, no one would, we just don't, we, none of us do. You don't, I don't know. We, don't, we just can't fathom that way of thinking that a family uh-huh. would go, this is our position and the husband's going to vote. Like it just feels really weird to us, but that is how a lot of people thought even a hundred years ago in our country, let alone in many parts of the world. So yeah. that, you, that's you just one me. very ordinary one. Well, I, I, as you were talking, I remembered an example you gave from the book that, that I found so interesting. And that was the the soccer player or the football player, the the person who kicks the, uh, the round ball. You, you, you might say you hit the ball with their foot. That's, That's right. why we call it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, the 90 players who seem to barely touch the ball and run around shoving it. <laughs> the footballer <laughs> who um, uh, got kicked out of a game because yeah. his opponent had said something about his sister. And so he, he what, headbutted him or did yeah, something out of the game. Yeah, Zinedine Zidane, he was the best player in the world and he got sent off during the World Cup final because he headbutted someone who offended his sister. And Western people watch that and go, you loon which surely a bit of self-discipline would realize that it was more important to win the national tournament than it was you know most and it's the probably the biggest most prestigious prize in world sport the world cup football final yeah and uh and you get sent off because someone said you just just suck it up and of course yeah. much of the world is watching that same incident going of course you defend the honor of your sister doesn't matter where it is that matters far more than and it's just one of those things where western people's take on it is so different from much of the world um and then we almost find it baffling that other people don't say it the same way. It's really interesting. Yeah. it. This may not be a good use of our limited time, but I, I still want to know since I've got you. In sort of an offhand comment, as you were listing all the things that, that you know, were affected by our weirder view of the world, um, and, you know, the, there are obvious things like uh, sexuality and identity, and but you sort of offhand just mentioned and sport, and then you didn't really mm-hmm. I mean, this example here, somewhat, I mean, it applies. What Did you have other yeah. things in mind about the way our weird... Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you could start with... So the, <laughs> bear in mind, I'm now generalizing about the Western world. Your nation is, an, is a complete outlier here because obviously you don't play the same... You play your own sports. And with the exception of basketball, nearly everyone else in the world doesn't play the sports that you do or very it's a very, very minority interest in most nations. But the sports that most nations play, and including your own, of course, which are then Western, the, 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 the fact that people in the South Sea Islands are playing British sports rather mm-hmm. than British people are playing what South Sea Islanders were playing in the 18th, we have actually picked up one of them, which is surfing, yeah. um, which, of course, they, they invented. But, but the fact that we have, my island, effectively, has exported 
the most of the sports that people in the world play and even of course you know what we would call american football is itself you know is still connected organically to the codification of football in the 19th yeah. century and so some to some of it is just the what the sports are okay some of it is the the code of those sports and the way that sport functions as a is not an original thought to me but a sublimating of male violence really mm -hmm. that it's a way of trying to build an honor code without having to get everybody killed partly the way that the commercialization and expansion of sport and the, the class dynamic what, what began in my country anyway, sort of you know often was a very sort of christian and working class movement as a way of getting people to spend their time in productive ways so they don't drink too much or whatever it might be hmm. but has gradually become commercialized is, is a window through which you can tell the story of the modern west and how economics drowns out christianity in the end or whatever so there's so many ways in which you can see sport as just a little it's a very accessible window through which we can see lots of other larger social trends and i'm by no means an expert on it but i do think it's it's a very interesting one even you know for a british person looking at the way american sport works and seeing the way that what looks to us like apart from the fact that we don't understand how the games work and no doubt that's mutual you don't probably understand cricket either um but it looks very exploitative to us to have these enormously cash generative college football programs which sure. people aren't paid to play and it's very dangerous so but even those things give a window into the way what culture values and how culture has basically money has swallowed nearly other, all other values and it's just quite a good parable of modern industrial western technology and and economic growth so that that's those are some of the things i was thinking of yeah yeah, yeah. i was in uh, uh dublin last summer and we were there on successive sundays through a strange i'll spare you the details but anyway the um the first sunday we were there they were playing the the championship for gaelic football and the second sunday they were playing the championship for hurling and they, but they had a stadium set aside for you couldn't play any British any any sports that came from England. They, they played, you know, regular football, but they didn't play in that stadium because that was for their Irish yeah. sports. Yes, yeah, and there's a long a long history of Anglo Irish relations, which should give you. Sure. I'm sure you found out plenty of sure. context as to why that's true. Yeah, but uh, but I also loved the we're going way down a rabbit trail. We would need to cut all this out probably, but, but the, the fact that the, the, the footballers or, or the hurlers, if you played for County Cork, you had to really be from County Cork. And it, 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 was, it was very, not just amateur, but, but, um, but very localized, um, no, yes. no recruiting, no trading. You know. Anyway, yeah. I, that's, that's neither here nor there. We, we should move on. Uh, Ex-Christian. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, were by calling by saying in I assume you said ex-Christian instead of post-Christian mostly because it worked fit in with your with your yeah. uh, it, it starts with an E. It's nothing, yeah, yeah, yeah. nothing okay. more fancy. So you don't mean anything different from from what other people no. mean when they say post-Christian. No. But I have to say I, I appreciated that language of ex-Christian as distinct from post-Christian, insofar as we are we are accustomed to the idea that when you're an ex-something if you're an ex-wife, your life is still very much shaped by the husband yeah. that you're not the wife of anymore. Yeah. Whereas post, that language to me feels like we left that behind. Yes. And your point of being ex, you know, when, when you say a culture is ex-Christian, it's still very, very much shaped by Judeo-Christian. Yeah. yeah. And I think the way I try that's very interesting. I've not heard anyone yet pick up on 
the idea that X and post have slightly different connotations, which I, I really I hadn't spotted that actually. It wasn't intentional, but I think uh -huh. you're right, they do. And I think for me, I mean, what the way I try and word it is I want to put the accent on the word Christian rather than the word X. So it's not that we are ex-Christian in the sense that we've abandoned everything to do with it. It's that we are ex-Christian as opposed to ex-communist or ex-animist or ex-Muslim or ex-Hindu or whatever, as in the, the the belief system that has shaped all of the institutions and all of the assumptions. And, uh, you know, the, the I can see a painting on the wall behind you and the books behind you. And that. Christianity has shaped all of those things, whether they're Christian books or not, in all sorts of ways, in a way that animism, say, or Islam, almost certainly have not, even if the mm. books are about Islam or animism. Mm. And that's what I mean, that, that the mm. accent is ex-Christian. It's like the the thing, the belief system that we have tried to move beyond into the brave new world of sort of secular, liberal modernity or whatever, is a Christian worldview rather than something else. That That's the angle on it. But obviously, the story of the book in part is about how the uh, the attempt to do that by moving beyond Christianity came about and uh, and reached its, in some ways its high point that that if you were if you wanted to, the golden age of atheism or people said when did when did athe when would when would you as an atheist have felt most like I think we're going to win this one guys <laughs> in history you might well have said the years immediately leading up to the French Revolution so or just before the terror probably so the 20 years leading up to 1793 or so I would think I mean Alistair McGrath does this in his book The Twilight of Atheism he says really high noon for atheism is about 1790 that kind of period and and what we now have is a we have lots of people who might not, they're not confessionally Christian but they're not atheist in the same way that it would have felt like was on the on the resurgence in the in that decade so yeah yeah that's, and, and that's the values by, by which Christian. yeah the, the values by which our cultures um criticize the church are the values yes of christianity i mean it, it, it's yes. you remark that if a if a viking were to somehow be reanimated and dropped into scandinavia which you know doesn't think of itself as an especially christian nation that viking wouldn't know what was going on no no it the values incredibly christian to yeah. be in you know the even just the welfare state that we have in europe and i know it would be a little different in the states but People from, yeah, if Asterix and Obelix were to wake up in modern France with all of its quite pretty robust secularism, they're one of the, you know, arguably the most thoroughgoing attempt to be secular, yeah. certainly in the West in France. Yeah. But Asterix and Obelix would go, what on earth is this value system? This is so alien to them. And they would see it as Christian from top to bottom once they knew what Christianity was. And the same would be true, on, on, obviously, in Britain as well. So, um, yeah, I, that's a that's a, a big. But I'm not, clearly not the first person to think of that, or anything. Sure. It's, it's a commonplace in people who write about it. But it is it's just interesting because to us, we feel a lot like, oh, well, Christians just been given Christianity's behind us. We've given it the boot, but it's still very, very here in the, the the fabric of the way we think. Even the language of human rights, which most people wouldn't want to question, is Christian from top to bottom. Where on earth did humans get these rights? If we're just bundles of molecules fighting each other to have more offspring it, it just doesn't follow and yet that that is how most people think it wouldn't be something people would give any ground on at all and it, that's a christian conviction yeah well i, I want to talk about the idea of, of you speak of the fusion of a christian and romantic influences mm. um, i guess maybe we need to back up and talk about what romantic is and how that's distinct from christianity but then how they yeah get um mixed up yeah so 
I mean, romanticism is incredibly difficult to define, and I, I do it. I have an attempt at it in eight words, beginning with I. I can't remember what they all are. Um, inwardness, infinity, ineffability, uh, imagination, and a bunch of anyway. Th- th- those are. But I'm you trying. Really to are a, is, a preacher, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, you. If you can't alliterate it, it isn't true. That's the rule. Yeah. <laughs> um, now that was a bit of fun. I think I got to about six in the list, and I thought, oh, they all start with I. Let's let's just make it work that way. But they, um, but it's very difficult to define. But I, but I think we would know it. It's more easy to point out who was who was doing it. And so this is like, you know, the the like the Schlegels and Wordsworth and Novalis and Coleridge, and then into Byron and Keats, and then the romantic musicians and romantic painters, and you, you know Chopin and Liszt and all the uh, starting with Beethoven and on that movement, and. But, but the, at the same time, the, the, the two, the, one of the arguments I make there is that these sort of two huge forces that shape the creative life in the modern world, a lot of our best art and most stimulating creativity arises from, I think I picture it like the mingling of two great oceans, that Christianity uh-huh. and Romanticism have a lot of tensions built into them, which drive a lot of the most creative and interesting artistic things people in the West do. And so there are tensions, for instance, between self-sacrifice and self-actualization. Mm-hmm. So in romanticism, you know, the idea of actually, you know, and this again in in the book, the, the period I cover in the book, someone like Rousseau is like, I'm just going to study myself. That's that's I'm going to retreat into myself. Oh, Goethe, you know, I return into myself. I find mm-hmm. a world. It's, so this is very 1770s early romanticism. The most interesting thing in the world there is is me. It's the inner me, and that's what I'm going to discover and then give to the world as a gift almost. And and so that's a sort of vision of self-actualization, self-discovery. Christianity is the language of self-sacrifice. It's the language of renouncing yourself, forget yourself and follow me. And the fusion between those two drives a lot of the most interesting art we have, because most, if you, I mean, just state it that way, most great stories, novels, sometimes even you can see to a degree in music, but certainly in the big stories, plays, films, the tension between somebody saying, am I going to give myself up for someone I love? Or am I going to actualize myself in order, or am I going to try and find a way of doing both? And that creates a lot of the drama that we love. Mm. And that would be one tiny example, but many, many of them, the very tense, a lot of tension between attitudes towards sex and sexuality or relationships or marriage. You know, you have a romantic vision. This is, you know, you follow your heart wherever it leads. You have a Christian vision. You say you remain faithful to commitments. And that again drives a lot of the most interesting plays, books, stories that have been written in the last 200 years. And so I give lots of examples in the in the the second chapter you referred to earlier, you know Harry Potter or the movie 1917 or uh, Hamilton or like all sorts of you know the Hilary Mantel's books and just ways of saying you know the West Wing. Lots of the, just think yeah. this is a this is what happens when Christianity and Romanticism collide. The Barbie and movie. both of those things have their root in 1776. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even seen the Barbie movie, but there's plenty of that in the Barbie movie too. I haven't yet actually. No, yeah. I, the problem is once you've seen it, you, you really do see it everywhere. You yeah, know? right. Because I then, as I watched, I don't, I don't very often go to the cinema, so I chose Oppenheimer, which yeah. I really love. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I can imagine from the reviews I've seen, the Barbie movie is a great expression. Yeah. Of that uh, Casablanca, another, another one that's very much. Well, about I'm also now. I'm many people will switch off now. I've never seen it. Is that right? So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> see, guys, I just didn't. I didn't get into black and white movies when I was young, and I now hardly ever watch them. So, yeah. I, I, my okay. Confession. Um. All right. 
you've you've already touched on you've already started down the road of identity and and this is a podcast for sort of the target audience the center of the target is people who are interested in the creative process creative work and and you you're sort of scratching that itch already um so let's let's can we talk a little bit about identity um the the weirder sense of identity um that we take as kind of normal. Um, I mean, for people who do creative work, identity is all mixed up with the work and I'm, the floor is open. I don't, I don't know what you were, obviously you're right. <laughs> you, you wrote this book um, yeah. and, uh, and you know what it's like to probably to have some of your identity wrapped up in that, that work. Um, yeah. What kind of insights yeah. do, do these, these ideas give us so this is a slightly annoying uh someone who's just written a lot about something thing to say but i think one of the things you have to do is you have to just ask you have to ask quite big questions about even what the what you mean when you're talking about identity and actually how most people in history have even that have not talked that way mm-hmm. um i remember hearing Hearing it's unfair because I'm mean, he's a good friend of mine, but he won't listen to this podcast, so it doesn't matter. And him saying something like he was on a on a pastor's training course I run, and he said, you know, the New Testament is all about identity. I said the New Testament never mentions identity. It's just not a category people use in the ancient world. It, it's um oh. that it's just fascinating how people would it would think it was because they would say I am in Christ or something like that, and they'd say ah oh, there you go it's identity language. You think no that yeah, yeah, yeah. you imported that. So I think sometimes what I think people mean when they say finding your identity in your work or your creative work, I assume what they mean or what I mean if I was to say that would be I am at risk of getting my validation, my affirmation and my sense that my life is meaningful from my creative work. That's what I would assume someone meant. But it may not be quite even what you mean. I don't know. But is that a fair? That's that's, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. So I think if I, I would start there actually, and then say, "Was well, what? What do we mean?" Because some, you know, sometimes I was in a discussion about identity just last night in my church, and someone was, someone said that even saying "I am X" isn't mm-hmm. to make a statement of identity. I think I don't. That's not how I use language at all. I, I am a homeowner, homeowner, or I am white, or I am. I, I just don't see those things as being. They're, they're true, but they're trivially true to me. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think identity implies something very, very deep in part of you, and particularly artistic folk rightly see that as a very important thing they've been given to stewards but yeah. if you start to see your creativity as your identity in a sort of theological sense like the most important truth about me is that i'm a writer or something i think that's to me that's just fundamentally not a christian way of thinking sure. um because the most important thing about you is that you're united with christ and in him so that i'd start there but i think if what people mean and i assume it is is i am at risk of feeling too much validation from creative work I totally relate to that and I'm concerned by it. And the bigger the project is, the longer it takes and the more nervous you are about whether or not people <laughs> will like it, the more that becomes true. And I think it is a battle of uh, which I'm probably to some degree even waging at the moment because I'm in this particular period now. I, you know, I, a lot of this time was lockdown. It was me and my computer and books and going home and telling my wife and her going, okay, that sounds interesting, but why again are we talking about voyages in the south seas or industrial how they made a steam engine and i'm thinking i've just got to trust that someone's going to find this interesting in three years time well we've now reached three years time and the validation either comes now or it doesn't 
Yeah. And so I'm very aware of that tension and can thoroughly relate to it. And I think there is a there is a continual battle, as there is with any work, to not derive your sense of value from what you've achieved, but from who you are in, in Christ and for what, what Christ has done for you. But I think creatives find that particularly difficult because and I don't really identify as a creator. I, mean, I, I write, but I don't think that's the main thing about me. But I think find it particularly difficult because so much of the process is very nebulous. And the only thing you have to show for it is a creation. Yeah. You you can't say, oh, well, on the way to doing this, I fed this many people. I mm -hmm. generated this amount of heat. I, you, I, you, you, <laughs> your, your activity or I even just created widgets. You yeah. say, no, I didn't. I, the only thing I did was this artistic thing, which is very difficult to get any value on without someone else saying, that really helped me or I loved it. Or, And so we're probably more inclined than most to find validation in the opinion of someone else of our own work mm -hmm. than someone who makes widgets or food or whatever most things people make. Um, so I suspect there's a, you know, if you write a piece of music, it has got no functional utility except in lifting the human soul. So it's very difficult to know without personal feedback from someone whether or not yeah. it's actually worked. So we're very vulnerable to reviews and no doubt sales. And if you do concerts or play, you know, applause, all those sorts of things, I, I think that yeah. is a creative person's more vulnerable than most to that phenomenon because of the nature of the work. Yeah. Yeah. And and you, you mentioned sales. I mean, even that model, even that metric, of success goes back to your acronym, your weirder ac acronym. You know the the, yeah. the Western values, the the commercial values, um, all all those. All yeah, those. I mean, so how does how does? I mean, I think the the greatest work of art that I've seen in person, I, in my, from, by my judgment, but many I know many would see it was those Michelangelo's Pieta, which he makes at twenty two, and it's sitting there in the in the Vatican in St. Peter's, and you see it, and you, you just cannot understand how a human being can do that, let alone a 22-year-old. But yeah. his validation doesn't come from anything like that, sales tickets or yeah. even fame. I mean, he would have been relatively well-known in within a circle, but his fame is far greater now than it would have been then. Most people in the world would have no idea who Michelangelo was. So that sense, you're right, that's a way of appraising artistic merit is quite new. Like now, that of course we know, yes, you, you get reviews in these, and, if you, and a review in this publication is far more meaningful than reviewing that one and yeah. sales. And we kind of mix that together to appraise ourselves. But that's, as you say, that's a very new way of appraising artistic merit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Can we, I, I'd like to address both writers of fiction and writers of, let's say persuasive, you know, essayists. Um, some of your insights around the 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 remaking of our our thinking you know by way of 1776 uh tell me about how does that affect the way we should be we can be telling stories well i i know nothing at all about the writing of fiction uh-huh i've never i don't think i'd be able i well i've got to <laughs> i've got to I've got some friends who do. Yeah. Um, I, when I finished university, a lot of the friends who I remain in touch with, a number of them were mm -hmm. in this sort of artistic world and wrote and still do, right? You know, plays and books and that sort of thing for and stuff on TV and things. But they say, I have heard from them and found it thoroughly believable that 
lot was just, I, I remember asking them once, why is poetry, why do a lot of young poets, you know, why, how can Keats write his all these poems and die at 26? But that doesn't happen with novelists, or almost never does. Normally novelists, their great work comes later. So what is it about poetry? And he said, actually, it's because plot is just so hard. Mm-hmm. And it's much in getting good with language is much takes much less time than plot is not. Now I don't, there's people here who know far more about this than me, but and might disagree. But that when I heard that, I thought, oh, that does ring true because of mm-hmm. course that's the something I haven't had to learn how to do. I haven't had to cook up. I'm trying to ne- narrate and pace a plot in a book like this, but it's all based on things that really happened. Yeah. Um, but kind of trying to invent plots is, I think, is very very hard. I I think the way I probably think that the the collision I talked talk about earlier between romanticism and Christianity is can be a helpful lens through which to view the creative process in that, uh, or, or even even storytelling, because it's so built around tension and the and the te- and tensions like the ones I mentioned is is this person going to remain true to their commitments and obligations and duties or are they going to be true to their feelings and instincts and desires? That's mm-hmm. a very classic sort of plot way of driving a plot. Yeah. Uh, you have is this person going as i said is this person going to sacrifice themselves or are they going to actualize themselves or both and in and which is going to take precedence over which and why um and so i think there is i think that the, those two trends that have shaped who we are are very significant for those of us who are trying to create plausible plots stories characters about human beings how yeah. human beings behave and what inner dynamics there are but to be honest, at anything more than a, at a practical level, I have no idea how to do that, and I just yeah. cannot but admire people who can write fiction because I've never, I've never even tried because I know I'd be terrible at it, <laughs> and so I've, I've yeah. written history instead. But I, I, I think it's finding an extraordinary process to see the result of it. Like, how on earth did you come up with that? I think it's an amazing yeah. Yeah. feat of human imagination. Yeah. I do love that idea of of acknowledging that tension. I think that's helpful to to think as, as we as storytellers think about you know, add things to their tool pouch, let's say. Uh, that's that's a good a good thing to have there in, in the tool pouch, this idea yeah. of the conflict between self-sacrifice and self-actualization. Well, let's talk about persuasion then. Um, and, um, you know, this is a book, you make a, you make an argument in this book. This is a book that, that is intended to persuade, um, to, to understand um, the you know, what you call the weirder um, vision of the world. Uh, how does that understanding shape the way we try to persuade other people? I think it shapes, it, it's particularly helpful, I hope, in giving, in articulating the stories that people already believe and therefore enabling us to to find points of common ground and connection with those who we are hoping to persuade of something else. Because, Persuasion is an awful lot easier to do. I mean, I've, I've, I've used this line a few times in talking about the book. It's much easier to say to somebody, here's what you believe and here's why you're right, than to say, here's what you believe and here's why you're wrong. Now, persuasion is usually only something you try and do because you think they are wrong about something, yeah, right. even if it's a fairly trivial thing. But you, but starting by saying this instinct you have that X is true is a good one, but it only follows from this other thing. Which mm-hmm. I, but because I now know what you believe, where, where I agree with you, I can then start there and work back to the thing that must therefore also be true. Um, and so, the better we understand that story or those cultural waters we're swimming in, the more likely we are to find connection points. And I think if we, you know, if we have a, a fairly narrow understanding of what people currently believe and live with, 
we'll find persuasion more difficult because we will think, well, I just don't know enough to find where is the common ground. And mm -hmm. we've all had conversations like this. We think I'm talking to this person. I just think we're totally missing each other like ships in the night here. Yeah. But the more we have, have seen the wider story that they live in or make sense and how they make sense of the world, the more likely we are to say, oh, there's a, there's a connection. There's a, and to start from there to build out with a view to persuading. Cause I think that's where persuasion usually starts is on yeah. uh, common ground and then building out. Um, so I think that's probably, I hope that's how a, a project like the one I've been working on and obviously many others do would might be able to contribute to persuasion in that sense, in that it, it gives you common ground to start from in building a case to persuade somebody else. Um, that's a very good question, really. It's not yeah. something I've thought a huge amount about. It's not why I've obviously wrote the book, but I do uh, I do think uh, it could help. Yeah. Well, it's remarkable how little effort goes into persuasion in our public discourse to actually trying to get someone to change their mind um, I mean, in other words, we're we're a lot more interested in browbeating, I think, than we are in persuading. Um, yeah, I think it's also helpful to to acknowledge it, not just these these other people have this you know overly romantic view of their of who they are, and I need to therefore persuade. It's helpful for me to realize the extent to which I have an overly you know. Or, or I have a some some of the things I think of as a Christian way of thinking about the world turns out to be Western industrialized uh, romantic. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, I really appreciate the way that you uh, help a reader like me. Um, I, I, don't like the word interrogate, but I'm going to use it just because it's what's coming to mind. It, you know, interrogate my <laughs> own assumptions because um, it really is easy to to mistake, you know, Western for Christian, mm. or for that matter, yeah. capitalist. Yeah, for, for Christian, if you're not thinking very hard about about things. Yes. So. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you a question that's just right out of the blue, and you can just tell me to to forget it if you need to. Um, artificial intelligence, is that, how does artificial intelligence fit into to the, the schema that you have laid out here? Well, I, obviously it doesn't because it, in the sense that it was a, it's a development that's emerged obviously in some way later, <laughs> so I don't think anyone was, anyone was anywhere near there in the, in the 1770s. I think in another way, it's, is obviously impossible to conceive of without several of those developments being what they are, particularly enrichment and industrialization, but probably also romanticism as well in a way, in that I think um, I've come across the term excarnation and a number of writers, and I can't remember who started it, huh. but the idea that sort of removing flesh, yeah. minimizing the extent to which the individual needs to be embodied is not only an industrial technological development, but it's also a, a philosophical and almost quite a religious one, really, which mm. is that we, we begin to say what really, again, if I were to go back, if I had to find someone in the 1770s who was writing, you think this is, this is, there's something AI-ish about this. Mm -hmm. I might go to someone like Rousseau because he's, he's saying, actually, I, I, will, re I will retreat 
I will spend some time with my own thoughts, thinking about me and actually the the me that I am in out there in public in the world in the way other others perceive me is not really that important. And and even of course in some way there's something slightly gnostic about that kind of we're not the embodiment of me is not the primary issue. It's really what's in yeah. the soul that matters. But actually that's part of a broader philosophical shift in the West to sort of separate what obviously what John one would call word and flesh, isn't it? It's like, yeah. you know, the word becomes flesh, but we're going, oh, no, 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 we're going to keep those two separate. What's what matters is the, the mind, the thought, the intelligence, uh, the, the logos rather than the socks, the, 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 the biological, physical, animated skin and bones reality. And so I think, although clearly AI is a, is the you would think the story of industrialization or enrichment are the two that most feed into it. I actually think romanticism does as well because the idea that people would think there was such a thing as intelligence that didn't have a body yeah. has got strangely sort of romanticy and obviously in some ways gnostic roots. Um, so yeah, the greatest brain we could get would be one that wasn't constrained by having to keep a body alive. Yeah, um, which is of course what what computers initially and then now AI are. So I think there's probably several threads you could pull on there. That's yeah. not something I've, I've thought about in the book at all, of course, but it's just yeah. interesting to mull up. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe we'll wrap up there um, because I was not planning on keeping you even this long. But uh, but thank you, Andrew, for oh, being here. Oh, it's great to talk. Thank you so much so for fun. your time and the fascinating questions. Yeah, well, thanks for this book. I hope a lot of people read it. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.